Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Stand with Immigrants podcast interview with Julia Saladino, Women's Law Senior Staff Attorney, and Michelle Robles-Torres, Bilingual Staff Attorney at Women's Law. Women's Law is a nonprofit organization that provides plain language legal information to victims of abuse. We wanted to talk with them today about working with survivors of trauma. We hope to prepare volunteers who want to work with immigrant populations for any challenges that may arise by providing them with tools that will improve their advocacy. My name is Casey Mears. I'm an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer outreach and resource coordinator at the Immigration Advocates Network, and I'm joined today by Julia and Michelle. Welcome to the podcast. Can you start off by telling us about women's law and your experience in working with survivors of trauma and abuse? Sure. So this is Julia Saladino, and I'll go ahead and start us off. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of information about my background working with survivors of trauma. Um, I went to law school here in Washington, D.C. at American University. And during law school, I did several internships um, with domestic violence agencies, um, providing direct services for survivors of abuse seeking restraining orders in court. Um, after law school, I clerked at uh, D.C. Superior Court and worked on a domestic violence calendar. So many of the litigants coming through the courthouse were also survivors of abuse seeking protection orders or custody of their children. And then after that, I spent a couple years litigating in D.C. Superior Court where I was representing survivors of abuse who were seeking protection orders and custody and divorce and child support. And then now, currently, um, as an attorney on the Women's Law Project, um, I correspond with victims of abuse on our legal email hotline and create legal resources for victims of abuse. Um, and then just to start by giving you a little bit of information about women's law, uh, women's law originally started as its own nonprofit um, back in the year 2000. Um, they were, had our own staff and kind of our own setup in New York City. And then um, there, you know, the focus at that time was to um, to address a concern that victims of domestic violence really needed information about their legal options and how to move forward when they were ready to leave situations where they were being abused. And there really wasn't that kind of accessible legal information available at that time. So that's how the project originally started. And then in 2010, um, the women's law founder um, kind of decided to step, step back, um, spend more time with her family and kind of retire a little bit. So um, she looked for a place to house women's law with a larger organization. So in 2010, we merged with the National Network on Domestic Violence, and so we've been a project of the National Network on Domestic Violence ever since then. And I'll let Michelle talk a little bit about her background as well. Thank you, Julia. Um, so this is Michelle Robles-Torres, and I'm the Senior Bilingual Staff Attorney at Women's Law. Um, as for my job, I answer mostly Spanish legal questions that we receive through the email hotline, and I also provide training or consultations to Latino organizations that want to know more about domestic violence and legal remedies available for victims and survivors. Um, before Women's Law, I was litigating in Puerto Rico, and I worked um, some cases with victims, but I practiced mostly family law, including divorces and custody cases. I also wanted to say about um, our webpage that we have over 10,000 pages of legal information in plain language, and we have them in a question and answer format. Um, we have general information about domestic violence, including warning signs, 
sites of abuse, national and state-level organizations that can help, and we also have state-specific information on restraining orders, divorce, custody, among other topics. Um, all this information and the general information and about half of the state-specific information is all translated into Spanish. We also have an email hotline, um, which Judy and I talked a little bit about. We have it both in English and Spanish, and there we have quite, we answer questions from victims, friends, family, and advocates, um, legal questions related to domestic violence, order of protection, divorces, um, and although we cannot provide them with legal counsel, we can send them information that is specific to their situation. So it's it's same with immigrants. Our volunteers uh, are working with with immigrant populations and often vulnerable immigrant populations. Um, so what do you think are some situations and what context might volunteers encounter survivors of trauma and domestic violence? Um, so this is Michelle. Um, survivors are everywhere, right? They might be our friend, our family member, our neighbor, our coworker. So this also translates to immigrant populations with the caveat that immigrants are much more, more vulnerable and might be a lot um, more difficult for them to leave an abusive situation. Um, you might find immigrants who are fleeing an abusive situation in their home country and are requesting asylum, or an immigrant who married a United States citizen or a legal permanent resident and is used as a maid by the husband or wife um, which could be considered trafficking or is being trafficked in some other way. Um, they might be abused by the husband or wife, with, which might qualify to self-petition through VAWA. Um, there's also the victim who is not married to the abuser or the abuser is not a United States citizen or a legal permanent resident, but the abuse constitutes one of the crimes from which they might be available to file for a U visa. So it's really about keeping your eyes and ears open when talking to an immigrant to try to identify how the abuse could be used as a base for legal protection that might allow that person to move away from abuse. So if there's anybody listening who has has not experienced working with people who are survivors of trauma um, and they're interested in volunteering but they're maybe intimidated and they don't know how they can help, um, where would you suggest they start? Yeah, it's a great question. This is Julia. Um, I really think it's an important first step for volunteers who are interested in working with victims of trauma to actually first educate themselves about trauma to get a better understanding of what a survivor of trauma may be facing. So, you know, often victims of trauma are not able to recall events in a really seamless and chronological way like you might expect victims to be able to do. And that's because trauma can have real physiological effects on a person's brain and on their memory, and their brain can actually repress some of these memories of, of the incidents of abuse. So trauma really can impact a person's healthy development, and it can impact the way that they um, in, engage in relationships and the way that they're able to communicate with other people. So it's important for volunteers who are interested in working with survivors of trauma not to make any assumptions about how a victim of trauma might present themselves, and not to, you know, assume anything about a victim of trauma or what the victim's story should sound like. And so I think once volunteers are educated about the effects of trauma, they might be a little less intimidated working directly with people who have experienced trauma. And I think, you know, a 
great place to look is to, you know, see what kind of local domestic violence shelters or agencies are available in their community. And, you know, sometimes they have really in-depth volunteer training, and that might be a good place to start in terms of trying to um, get plugged in with these populations. And then I'd also suggest that volunteers who are considering working with, um, you know, victims of trauma actually work with a more experienced professional, at least when they're first starting. And so, you know, when they first encounter survivors of trauma, they don't really have to steer the entire conversation or the interview on their own, and they're able to kind of get some training from a professional that maybe has more experience doing so. So can you talk about some strategies that people use when working with survivors? Uh, For example, do either of you know anything about trauma-informed care? Yeah, sure. This is Julia again. Um, Trauma-informed care really kind of refers to just recognizing that people have really experienced different types of trauma in their lives and then being able to provide support and the understanding needed to those victims of trauma. So it's really about, like, meeting the victim, the survivor, where they're at. Um, Trauma-informed care really requires service providers to understand, recognize, and respond to the effects of all types of trauma, and then to help survivors regain a sense of control and empowerment in their own lives. So unfortunately, many times um, when service providers or volunteers are working with victims of trauma, they might have really good intentions and be well-meaning, but they can end up re-traumatizing survivors of trauma because, you know, maybe they don't believe them because their story really isn't linear or some parts don't really make sense. Or they um, they really kind of try to um, take over the situation and make sure that um, the survivor is getting access to resources, but really it can kind of feel like they're actually controlling the survivor's choices and not giving the survivor agency in their own lives. And then sometimes, you know, service providers can fail to provide the real um, emotional support and compassion that's really necessary when dealing with victims of trauma. So really trauma-informed care is is about kind of providing the care that is required and recognizing that, you know, people have really experienced different types of trauma and that can have different effects on their lives. What would you say are the most important factors to consider when working with survivors And do you have any big do's or don'ts in your experience that that you think are important to know? Um, Sure. This is Michelle. I think one of the most important and most difficult things to do is to take away your savior hat. And I think Julia just touched on some of that. Um, Usually victims of domestic violence have been abused emotionally, sometimes physically, sexually, or financially. But often they are also silenced. And by that, I mean that they are treated disrespectfully, felt like no one listened, like their own opinions didn't matter, um, that they had no control. So even though it might be hard, we need to understand that they need to, that they need the chance to find and reclaim their space and their voice. Um, they don't need somebody acting and taking decisions for them, but to be supported in whatever path they decide to take. And And that might be very difficult to do, but also very necessary. And this doesn't mean that we are not going to give them alternatives or referrals or information, but the idea is that we're not going to make decisions for them or talk for them, but rather offer support even if we don't agree with the decisions they are taking. Um, In terms of the do's, I think we have to believe him or her. We have to be supportive of her to help them in any way they feel is necessary. 
um, learn learn about domestic violence and sexual assault so you can better offer um, support. We have to we can look for alternatives that might be available and then let them choose their path. In terms of the don'ts, try not to impose your perspective or establish what they need to do. Um, don't limit your support only if they do what you think is right. Don't make decisions for them behind their backs, obviously, with the argument that it's best for them. And also don't say you will do X, Y, and Z if you are unsure, then you can, or if you can't do that. Um, are, you, can you think of any words or topics to avoid that may be triggering uh, when communicating with survivors? Yeah, so this is Julia. Um, what I think is important to understand is that every survivor is really different and has a different set of experiences. So there isn't going to be really one set list of words or topics to avoid as possible triggers because triggers are going to be different depending on what kinds of trauma people have experienced. Uh, what I think can be helpful is that um, people working with survivors of abuse should feel comfortable actually asking, you know, the survivor what what works for them. So you could actually ask, is there anything specific that you're uncomfortable talking about or is there anything that you don't want me to ask? Uh, and that way you can get a better idea of knowing what topics that the survivor doesn't want to cover. Um, but, you know, volunteers should really also keep in mind that a survivor may not actually know that something is a trigger until it comes up in the conversation. And so you really have to be flexible in gearing the conversation elsewhere and really reading the person. And if you notice that the survivor is shutting down or is really uncomfortable or you're having a hard time um, communicating or connecting, then to, you know, to gear to a different way to cover the conversation. And, you know, sometimes you do have to have hard conversations with survivors of trauma um, because you need to collect information for whatever reason. And so I think in those situations, it's really important to kind of prime the person, to let them know, you know, I'm going to be talking about this thing, and it might be difficult to talk about, but this is why I'm asking. And so then at least they understand the context of why the topic's being brought up. Um, I think as a general rule, I do try to always warn people when I'm going to discuss violence or sexual assault or ask about those things so that they can make a decision about whether or not they're able to engage in that conversation. You mentioned you, ha you might have to have a difficult conversation or somebody might not know things that trigger them. So if someone does become triggered or anxious or agitated, how do you suggest volunteers or advocates working with clients might handle that type of situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to not ignore it, to, you know, not pretend like it's not happening. Um, the volunteer can can acknowledge that, you know, it seems like, I said something that made you uncomfortable, and then give the person space. Like if they need to take a break from the conversation to allow for the space for that, you know, if they need five minutes, they want to take a walk or they want to get a glass of water, to, to just allow them the space to, to kind of process and then um, to reengage in a way that they're able to and, to, and then for the um, volunteer to use the information that they've just gained to actually try and rephrase the question or see if they can do without certain pieces of information or, um, you know, move on to a different topic that's, that's necessary for them to cover. So I think it's just really important to be responsive. I imagine, and, and you both have done this work for some time, um, that you've faced some challenges in your personal 
experience in working with survivors and working in these situations. Can you share anything that you've experienced that was challenging and how you coped with it? Uh, Yeah, this is Julia. Um, So one of the biggest challenges I faced while I was providing direct services to victims of trauma um, is that they have a lot of needs. And what I mean by that is that, you know, survivors of domestic violence have had many aspects of their lives controlled by an abuser for years. And Michelle spoke to this. You know, they might have their um, their finances controlled. They might have their housing controlled or their custody of their children. And in addition to that, they might not have access to the emotional and social support that they need, and they're also experiencing physical or emotional abuse. And so often a survivor of violence is going to be facing many complex processes when they're trying to actually rebuild their lives after this type of abuse. And so the challenge that I would often face is that there really weren't enough resources to actually adequately address everything that they needed. So, you know, there aren't really enough lawyers to go to court with everyone who needs to go to court. And there there isn't enough housing. And, you know, really a lot of survivors didn't want to be homeless, obviously, and so would stay in an abusive situation to keep their housing. So, um, you know, they're just facing so many hurdles when trying to access resources. And so and I thought that that was really particularly difficult when I was providing direct services. So, I mean, the way that I would kind of try to address that challenge is to join in with the difficulty that my client was facing as much as I could. So, you know, that's going to depend on your own, like, emotional capacity. But, you know, rather than sending my client off alone um, to go try to apply for public benefits, for example, I might try and find a time where I had a few hours in the morning where, where I could just, like, go stand in line with them or help them fill out the application. And, you know, this wasn't always possible, but I do hope that, that it was a way to kind of help my clients feel less alone and kind of actually help me feel like I was doing a little bit something for them when there maybe weren't enough resources for them in the first place. Um, and then I, I'll just speak really quickly to one challenge. You know, we don't do direct services in our current um, positions at women's law, but, you know, uh, similarly, you know, sometimes it can feel like when we're providing legal information that we're not necessarily, you know, providing everything that the victim really needs at that moment because we're not able to join them in court or to handle their case for them or to give them really direct legal advice. And so I think, you know, the way that I've coped with that is to, you know, understand what our role is and that how important it is for survivors to actually have accessible legal information and hopefully to um, try to connect them with the resources in their state. Yes, and I wanted to add to that that um, when I was mitigating Puerto Rico, one of the challenges I faced a lot with survivors was the anxiety around going to court and going maybe for a protection order um, or whatever. And I think it's very important either, you know, in court or whatever situation that survivor is facing, that we hear them and we try to work around that. So maybe creating a safety plan for before and after, maybe letting them know what's going to happen in court so they feel more comfortable. And we have plenty of information about these topics in um, our website, so you're free to um, glance over and um, see how you can help these survivors navigate the legal system or, you know, whatever anxiety they have outside of it. Um, can you talk a bit about any any ethical issues that might come up or um, any issues with confidentiality and how that might differ from other areas of law or other things that people might be doing um, and how this how working with this population is different and any ethical standards that are different? 
Yeah, um, I'll just start off by, you know, mentioning that, you know, different types of professionals may have, like, different ethical and confidentiality requirements according to their licenses. So, for example, you know, I practice in Washington, D.C., and social workers and mental health professionals might actually be mandatory reporters of things like child abuse, but lawyers are not. So it's really important to communicate your obligations directly to the client before they end up disclosing information about themselves. And the reason that's really important is because if a client ends up, you know, disclosing something really personal that has to be reported to authorities, it can really destroy the client's trust in that particular service provider. And it could also destroy his or her trust in all service providers. And so they might be more hesitant to reach out for help um, to anyone. But um, I think what's uh, really kind of unique about this population is that victims of domestic violence and, you know, immigrant populations, they're in vulnerable, vulnerable positions because they're often trying to hide information about themselves and about their location from their abusers. So, you know, revealing a survivor's personal information can really put them in danger. It's, it can be very serious. So it's really important that service providers take survivors' privacy and confidentiality very seriously. And so, you know, accordingly, I think it's really important that when someone is actually providing a service, that they only gather the information about the survivor that they actually need. So instead of an agency having kind of, you know, a hundred-question intake form that just gathers all the information under the sun, it's way more important to have, you know, a few tailored questions that are actually necessary to be able to provide services to that person. And then, um, you know, it's also really important to not just hold on to data for years and years because those types of things can possibly be subpoenaed. And, um, you know, it's just really important to have really um, kind of strict and tailored intake and, and data collection and destruction kind of processes and policies in place. And so that's really, you know, one of the things that I'd want to highlight about ethics and confidentiality when working with victims. So I, I imagine that it's very likely impossible that when working with immigrant populations, there's going to be some diverse cultural backgrounds. I understand that different cultures handle things differently in terms of domestic violence and assault and and any type of trauma. Um, how can volunteers and survivors from diverse cultural backgrounds uh, work on establishing a positive rapport about their experiences? Um, and do you have any tips for maintaining that cultural sensitivity? Um, yeah, that's a great question and a very difficult one. Um, even though it might have, like, a general really easy answer in terms of be respectful of someone else's cultural background and their preferences, even if we don't agree with them, but that's not really that easy. Um, just going back to um, Julia's answer just now in terms of um, when to when, when to break confidentiality or when to disclose um, a behavior, um, I was talking to one of the organizations I work with, the Latino organization, and one of the main concerns they had is that victims went to shelters and then in the Latino community, um, physical or, or corporal punishment is not necessarily seen as something bad in terms of the kids. Um, but in the United States, it might be, I'm saying it's right or it's wrong, but then um, victims were being um, referred to Child Protective Services. And then, you know, you have a victim or a survivor of domestic violence that is now being investigated and who might lose 
her kids because um, of cultural differences. And again, I'm not saying it's, it's right or it's not. Um, I'm just saying that we have to find a way to work around our cultural differences. Um, sometimes we don't know what those um, differences are, so it can be more complicated. So, for example, someone might say that they don't want a divorce because they don't believe in divorce. And for somebody who's more progressive, um, that could be unheard of. You know, old people with the old marriage thing or divorce, divorces exist for a reason, etc. But that would be ignoring that person's truth and cultural background. And for a big part of the Latina community, for example, marriage is a sacred institution. When you said, um, for better or worse, you really meant that. And if the volunteer reacts and is dismissive um, toward that person's belief, then the volunteer may have lost most of all of their opportunity to support that survivor in the way they need to be supported. Um, so on one side um, of the equation, work on your focus phase, um, and then understand that there are a lot of practices and beliefs that you don't share with other people, um, just as you have a lot of views and practices that they don't share with you. Understand that there is not one truth, and try to learn from the people you interact with as much as they might learn from you. Um, they might be in, a, in an abusive relationship, but that doesn't take away the wealth of knowledge and experiences you were you will learn from them. So you both have done this work. Um, do you have any tips for maintaining balance and boundaries with clients um, and any recommendations for self-care for volunteers or really for anybody working with victims and survivors of domestic violence and other trauma? Yeah, you know, I would encourage everyone who's providing any direct services to really explore what self-care practices work best for them. For me, uh, when I was practicing and communicating directly with clients, it was really important for me to limit my clients' access to me um, to work hours. So I wouldn't give clients my cell phone and I wouldn't respond to emails late at night. Basically, I was available to them, you know, during the hours I was at work, but I would go home and, and have to set the boundary that I wasn't working at home. So um, setting these types of boundaries, can, you can sometimes only you know, figure out what you need and what works for you when you realize what's not working for you. So I would really encourage people who are volunteering or who are working with victims to notice when there's something that's making them feel more stressed or making them feel like they're being spread to too thin. And then once they identify what the boundary needs to be, that they communicate that boundary to the other people that they're working with and also to their clients. Um, in terms of self-care, the techniques that have worked for me um, have really included, you know, exercising regularly, doing yoga and meditation, and really just socializing and spending time with, you know, people that make me laugh and that I can have a good time with. But, you know, there there can definitely be a ton of other ways that people might find self-care to work for them. So, you know, it doesn't have to be those specific techniques. Um, I actually really highly recommend reading the book Trauma Stewardship. And so, you know, you can find it on Amazon or at your bookstore, but it really helps explain secondary trauma. And, you know, secondary trauma is when you're working really closely with victims of trauma, and even though you might not have experienced the trauma that they're describing to you, um, because you're, you're hearing about it over and over again, you kind of adopt 
some of some of the feelings and some of the the trauma that they're describing to you. Um, and so, the book kind of helps to to explore secondary trauma and kind of helps you teach you how to care for yourself while you're doing really difficult work. So I think it might be helpful for people to read when they're kind of entering this hard but hard type of work. Thank you both so much for all of your insight and sharing your experience. Um, I think this is a really valuable conversation, and I'm really glad that we get to share this information with people. Um, do you guys have any final comments? Um, and if you want to share any contact information and how people can get in touch with you, um, do you have any volunteer opportunities available with Women's Law that people can look in, look into if they're interested? Um, so, yeah, we would like Thank you, Casey, for having us and for all the work that you do and and the volunteers do on a daily basis. And we'd love to hear from you. Um, If you have a suggestion or comment or if you have a question, um, you can write through our legal email hotline at hotline.wimslaw.org. And I definitely want to second the thank you. Um, We really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation and to, you know, highlight victims of domestic violence and, you know, that volunteers want to get involved with this population. I think that's great. Um, I can definitely let everyone know that we accept applications for law student interns every semester. And um, sometimes we are able to also accommodate uh, college students for um, internships. And so um, the other thing, the other volunteer opportunity that we have is that annually we train law students to help us respond to emails over our legal email hotline. The training only happens once or twice a year, and it only happens in Washington, D.C. and New York City right now. But if um, students were ever interested in any of those opportunities, they could write to us and let us know that they want to be informed about when the next training is going to be or could let us know that if they're interested in internships. And so the email address uh, to write in for those things would be womenslaw at nnedv.org. Okay, great. Thank you so much.